Well, it's a joy to get back into 1 Corinthians 15 again with you this morning. And as I was preparing for this passage, I was curious to see, as we're going to look in our, in our text, Paul's going to describe, here is what was the most important thing I ever brought you. And so I was curious to see who else has had the courage to make such statements about other areas of life. I, I googled around, what's the most important axiom in mathematics, for example? And it turns out, them's fighting words. Uh, there, is, there is no consensus as to what the most important axiom in mathematics is, but there are a lot of professors that insist they're all necessary. Peace. I uh, looked up what's the most important fact in science. Again, no general consensus. All kinds of interesting ideas. Uh, what's the most important thing in art? Uh, the only semi-consistent answer I could find to that is that the most important thing in art is the frame because that's when you know when reality stops and the art begins. Um, what's the most important thing in music? Many argued it was the melody, but others said no, it's the, it's the beat, it's the rhythm. Without a clear understanding of what is most important and most necessary, it can be difficult over time for a thing to hold together, and I think that's one of the reasons why in so many fields they move around a lot, is because we're still hunting and trying to figure out, can this be changed, can this be changed, can this be changed? And you see that in all the different fields, whether it's math and non-Euclidean geometry, or whether it's in science and various different approaches to the, to, to the scientific method, whether it's in even in music and in art and the various forms of deconstruction and and different ways that people have tried to say, can we throw, how many of the rules can we throw out and still have this thing? And so in some ways, I think an excellent test for any ideology, any truth claim, any worldview, any religion is to say this, are you willing to state up front, this is the most important thing? the thing that can bear the weight of the entire system. Are you willing to articulate that clearly? And as Christians, we do not need to worry about how we might face such a question because the answer's already been given to us, and it's something that we don't need to invent. It's something that Paul simply says we need to unashamedly proclaim. And for Paul, it was the gospel, it was the good news, and... And as we discussed last week, that good news that is ours in Christ is expansive. It covers all of our whole life. But that good news or gospel does have a single axle about which everything turns. It does have a heart. It does have a core upon which everything depends. And for Paul, this was his entire life, was to take that with him wherever he went. Even to places like the great city of Rome, where he knew such a message would find ridicule and would find scorn, would be considered laughable foolishness or outrageous scandal. He could write and say, I'm looking forward to being there because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. In chapter 15, I'll remind us Paul is devoting this entire chapter to the issue of the resurrection of the body and how that forms part of a Christian's great hope. 
Uh, Paul began chapter 15 by reminding the Corinthians to set up that theme of the centrality of the gospel message for their whole lives. And we learned, if you'll recall, that it was the message that they had first received. It was the message, he said, that they were still standing in. It was the message by which they were still being saved day after day. It was the message that they needed to adhere closely to or else risk a belief, as he said, that was in error or in vain and couldn't save. This gospel message contained in, as Paul described, the word which I preach to you. So what was that word? What was that beating heart of truth? And why is Paul beginning with that in order to teach the Corinthians that believers can expect a bodily resurrection from the dead? This morning we're going to see that Paul is going to show that you cannot separate the Christian faith at its most fundamental level from the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is part of the heart of Christianity. And therefore that also forms the foundation for our own hope in resurrection. It is the person and the work of Jesus Christ that is the center and is the focus of the gospel message. This center is the fountain from which all other good news flows to believers. And so Paul is going to show us this morning that the gospel indeed has a central message and that that message of the person and work of Jesus Christ rests on biblical authority, comes to us through history, and impacts each and every one of us personally. And as Paul will begin by saying this morning, it is the most important message in all the world. And so if you have your copy of God's Word, if you're turned there to 1 Corinthians 15, I'd invite you to stand with me as we will read 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 1 and down through our passage this morning, verse 11. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 1, Paul writes this, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God." But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Would you pray with me? Father, give us understanding this morning, once again, as we look at the gospel of the person and the work of your Son and how it comes to us. And may we find new wonder 
and your wisdom and your love on display. And may we find new strength to live in this grace. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as you saw, Paul began there saying, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And I want to introduce the gospel here with this introduction that has three, I think, significant observations about Paul and his ministry of the gospel. First note, the word of the gospel here is something that Paul delivered to the Corinthians. He did not make it for them. Right? He, he delivered it to them. It was something that he had brought. It was something that he had given. It was not his to shape, to change, to modify. It was simply his, his to transport. Paul was a gospel deliverer, not like he was a redeemer, but he was like a UPS guy, except it was the universal gospel service. That's what he saw his purpose in life as. Take this, get it there, don't mess it up in transit. And as Paul says, it was of first importance. This is at the top. Before the Corinthians needed to understand anything else, they needed to understand these words. And Paul was fond of describing how in his approach, whether it was to, to the Jews in the synagogue or whether it was to the Gentiles in the town square, he went in loaded with this, Christ and him crucified. That was the most important thing that Paul could deliver to anyone. And that's a pretty big claim. It's a big deal to say this is the most important thing you will ever understand in your life. And for, I know in our church we have many of you that are educators, many of you are parents, grandparents, and you've had to pass on a lot of important lessons in life. I'm sure this is how you tie your shoes. Don't touch a hot stove. Look both ways before you cross the street. And so on and so forth. There's a lot of really important information that gets transferred between people. And it's a bit arrogant to say, and what I'm about to tell you is the most important thing you will ever hear. But Paul isn't being arrogant here. He's just being truthful. There is nothing of greater importance than this message. And that's why it started with this for Paul and everything else connected to it. You will notice then that this is what the devil shoots at, that this is his target, that his relentless assault is to undermine what we are about to study this morning, because everything about the Christian faith and life hangs and, and hangs its entire weight on this message. It was of first importance. And, and I want you to also notice right there at the end of that opening introduction, Paul says, this is what I delivered to you. It's the most important thing. And it's something that he had first received. And he uses that same word received that he had just used to speak of the Corinthians and them receiving the gospel. There is nobody other than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who has ever delivered a gospel that isn't already at least secondhand. We, we do not conceive the gospel, we, we receive the gospel, and then we deliver it. This is not something that is, 
is a message that we can come up with, that we can, through our cleverness, invent and create. No, this is something that had to be given to each of us. And at some point, each of us had to take what was delivered to us and by the grace of God, understand it and receive it. And it transforms our life. And then we take it and we give the same gift to somebody else. And as we'll talk at the end this morning, how cool is it to think that Jesus Christ gave to his church this incredible blessing, the message of the gospel, the message of reconciliation, and it was received by that first generation, and then it was delivered, and then it was received, and it was delivered, and it was received, and it was delivered, and it was translated, and it was relocated, and it was proclaimed, and it was confronted and persecuted, but it kept going and it kept going until somebody delivered that same message to you and you received it. And Paul understood he was just one link in what would be the mighty chain of gospel, gospel transfer that would dominate all of time. Paul is a herald, a humble and thankful herald of the gift that he had first received. And this is what he heralded. If you're taking your notes this morning, your first blank is this. The gospel is biblical news. The gospel is biblical news. Here's what Paul proclaimed, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Now, I'm cutting a little bit off, and you'll see why, but there are four claims that Paul groups together as the central message of the gospel. We just read three of them. Christ died for our sins, and that he was buried, and that he was raised again on the third day, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Those are the four claims in this brief almost a creed that Paul gives about the gospel. We're going to deal with the fourth one in our next point, and I'll explain why. But that's the central drivetrain of the gospel. Those four claims, Christ died for our sins, he was buried, he was raised again on the third day, and he appeared. And I want to walk through them together with us. And then we'll begin with that first claim, that Christ died for our sins. This is a very short phrase, and it's loaded with meaning. When Paul chooses that word Christ there, he's not just being polite and using you know, Jesus' formal name. Christ is not one of the names of Jesus. It's his title. It's his office. It's the role that he played. It's the Greek form of the Hebrew word Messiah. And so Paul here, by saying Christ, he is pulling together all the hope of the Old Testament in the promises of God to send one who would be the deliverer, who would be the redeemer. He's going all the way back and reaching into the book of Genesis and the seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent. He's going back to Abraham and the seed of Abraham that would bring a blessing to the whole earth. He's reaching back to David and the promise that a descendant of David would sit on David's throne and rule in righteousness forever. He's going back to Daniel's vision of the Son of Man who is right there with the Father, but will come down to us. All of this is packed into the promise and the expectation of that word Christ. 
somebody would come in the flesh and he would save his people. And Paul says, it happened. I was talking recently uh, with, a, with a brother here about the Jewish calendar. Because in the Jewish calendar, they're, they're approaching what they think is a very important date. And that is the year 6,000. In the, in the Jewish calendar, they believe that they've figured out when day one was, and they've been counting, and they've got all of history divided into three 2,000-year-long chunks. And so there was 2,000 years before the law, there was 2,000 years of the law, and then there's 2,000 years that they call the, the years of the Messiah. And they believe that by the end of that 2,000-year period, the Messiah has to return. And so they're waiting, they're expecting when will he come? And those that have done evangelistic work, especially in Orthodox Jewish communities, have found that it's become increasingly difficult to get an ear because there's this sense that he could be coming any minute. I don't want to abandon it now. After almost 6,000 years, we're almost to that finish line. And Paul is declaring, no, Christ already came. The promised one has arrived. The ages of anticipation are over and the time of declaring the finished work has arrived. Christ has come. But secondly, notice he says Christ died. Christ died. Those are not the two words that especially a Jew like Paul growing up learning the messages and the teachings of Messiah, those are not the two words that would have been stuck together in his education right? The Christ conquers. The Christ is victorious. The Christ saves. The Christ redeems. The Christ doesn't die. But Paul can't get two words into his gospel message without pointing to the fact that the Christ has come and he died. And yes, he died a physical death on the cross. His heart stopped beating he stopped breathing. But even more importantly, Christ died a spiritual death on the cross in enduring the wrath and the turned face of his Father. And in a way that we will never understand, Christ was able to absorb the fullness of death on the cross. In a period of a few hours of time, he was able to bear the full rejection and the full wrath of Almighty God that you and I would not be able to experience in all the eternities of hell and separation from God. When Christ died, he swallowed death up whole. And what was that death for? It was for our sins. And it is right to say Christ died for sin. But I appreciate that Paul makes it personal here. Christ died for our sins. It reminds us of how blessed we are to be a recipient of this sacrifice. We talk often of the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. And that is what these verses point us to. The fact that our sins had broken our relationship with our Creator permanently and hopelessly. 
and that there was no chance for redemption for us unless someone could come who would have the capacity and the willingness to be our replacement on judgment day. That was the only hope. I was not able to find a statistic, but it would be fascinating to find out in the history of jurisprudence how many criminals have found themselves in a position with a life sentence they could never repay and found somebody who would intercede on their behalf and say, I will take that punishment. I'm guessing that would be vanishingly rare. That is not the news that somebody expects to hear when a judge rightly says, life sentence. But for each and every one who will come to Christ by faith, we find that indeed there was a substitute for us. One who died for sins, and not just for sins generally, but for our sins. This is the central message of redemption, that Christ, the Messiah, died entirely for our sins as our substitute, that we might be brought to God. That, however, is not the entirety of the central gospel message. Because had we only known that much, he came, he taught us he was the Messiah, and he died, and he said it was for sins. Man, what a scary question mark would be hanging over our faith until Judgment Day, wouldn't it? We'd have no idea if he was right. We'd have no idea if his death worked. And given that nobody else in the history of the world has ever died a death that could be for anybody else, we would always be left to wonder... What is really waiting for me on the other side of the Jordan? And that's why we'll get to the glorious truth that he didn't stay dead. But before we get there, I want you to notice what Paul appeals to as the authority for these bold claims. Christ died for our sins. That's a bold claim. Paul could have said, and I witnessed it. I was there. I knew the people. I saw what happened. Or you should see the way that this news is affecting people all around the Mediterranean. But instead he says, and Christ died for our sins based off of this authority, that that's what God said would happen in his word, according to the scriptures. That is what he appeals to in his gospel proclamation. And in the death of Christ for sin, indeed, Jesus filled up so much of the promises of Scripture that his people had been studying for millennia and missing. All the hints and pictures of the Old Testament would be filled up in Christ's death. This had been hinted at all the way back in the garden, you'll recall, when the first sin required the first death to provide a covering of shame. It was hinted at when Abraham, for example, was told when he was asked to go sacrifice his own son and God said, no, I will provide a sacrifice and you will name this hill God provides, the place where later the temple would be built. Of course, probably most profoundly and most pervasively, 
the blood of the Passover lamb and the blood of the sacrifice for atonement were powerful, ongoing symbols constantly declaring that sin requires a sacrifice of substitution. And in their imperfect way of ever fulfilling our need for a substitute, they were always pointing forward. They were always hinting forward. A better sacrifice must be on the way. But Jesus also fulfilled the very specific words of Scripture that spoke directly to what the work of the Messiah would be. You cannot do better, I believe, in all of Scripture than in Isaiah 53. And we love this chapter. And it tells us over and over and over that the Christ would come to die for sins. In Isaiah 53, if you just scan through the chapter, you see that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. It goes on to say that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. The Lord was pleased, it says, to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. My servant will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. And he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. There's not a lot of other ways you can put it. When the Messiah came, when God's chosen servant would come, this would be his ministry, to suffer and to die as a substitution for the people who deserved God's holy wrath. And that's exactly what Jesus did. And Paul concludes that opening argument then by simply observing that he was buried. This death that Christ died was real, and it was an anticipation of what must comes, come next. Because once Christ had died, and once he had been buried, then two things were going to happen. He was going to be abandoned to the grave, or he was going to conquer the grave. And that brings us to good news that is going to be the basis of Paul's argument for the rest of this chapter. He was raised up on the third day raised up he was not just taken up as though this were some kind of a mystical message that we believe that jesus died and he was put into that tomb there in the area around jerusalem and and then god looked down and mystically took his spirit back to heaven and you just need to trust that no he was raised up physically he actually came out of the actual opening of an actual tomb. And notice it doesn't say he raised himself up, but that he was raised up. As the scriptures tell us over and over, perhaps nowhere clearer than the short verse in Acts 13.30, which simply says, God raised him up. Just as the Son had walked his whole life in obedience to the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit, so it pleased God that the Father would raise up the Son by his power as a declaration that he had accepted full payment for the sacrifice of sin. And this is when good promises became good news. This is when wishful thinking became blessed reality. 
Every self-pronounced Savior who's ever lived and died, whose tomb we know and can visit today, is gravely mistaken. Only one has come back. And he came back on the third day. He came back on the third day after all shadow of doubt concerning his death was settled. And he also came back on the third day before he would have undergone any decay because he came back as he was raised up according to the scriptures. And once again, the imagery of the Old Testament is filled up here. Jesus himself in Matthew 12 taught them and said this, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah, the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Before the good news was proclaimed to those lost sinners in Nineveh, their messenger would spend three days in that symbol of death, the belly of the fish, and Jesus says, that was a hint. And I'm about to fulfill it. But it also came about that it might fulfill specific messianic prophecy. Once again in Isaiah 53, as we read, the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, comma, here's a little little side here. Guilt offerings are dead offerings. That, that's the only kind of guilt offering there is. You kill something. And that's why Isaiah 53 said he was cut off from the land of the living. So he was giving himself as a guilt offering. Dead. Comma. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul... After his death, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. This is a work that Jesus would complete, and then afterwards he would be there to enjoy the results. You can't do that if you are abandoned in the grave. Psalm 16.10, a psalm quoted throughout the New Testament, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Yes, he would taste the grave, not long enough for the grave to take a bite. He would be in, conquer, and be out. Job 19, this is one of my favorite Old Testament passages that makes me scratch my head. When Job writes, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, Yet from my flesh I shall see God. That last verse there from Job may be the oldest written verse in the Bible about resurrection. Yes, when Moses writes the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy, he is writing about events before Job, but it is quite possible that Job chronologically was the first book that was written. How on earth had Job already understood that one day his Redeemer would be physically standing on this earth at the end of the age and that he in resurrection would stand with him? I don't know. 
Maybe Melchizedek told him. I'm curious. Someday we'll get to ask him. This verse is also a foreshadowing of where Paul will take his argument next week. But he isn't done yet with laying out the gospel message. Just as the burial of Jesus was the demonstration of Christ's death, so here we see now a demonstration of Christ's resurrection. Just as he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, he demonstrated that reality by appearing, by revealing his resurrected self to others. And before we look at that, I want to underscore something here. As I've said already, the message of the gospel, like all messages calling for obedience, has to ultimately come on the basis of some appeal to authority. It has to say, you need to know this, you need to follow this, because here is my reason, here is my grounds, here is the authority for saying this. And notice again, Paul is appealing not to himself, not to experience, not to scientific proofs, not to high-profile endorsements, not to how the gospel has helped people fix all of their problems, none of that. When the gospel makes its claim to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, it does so with an appeal to the authority of God's word as contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. It's one of the reasons we're not embarrassed to be a Bible church. And we as Christians need to never be embarrassed to be Bible people. This is what we stand on. And I think sometimes we're afraid that our faith is sort of this, this fragile and intricate spider web of customs and traditions and, and beliefs. And we're just afraid that if we allow anybody to go poking or prodding around at it, it's just going to make a mess of the whole thing. Look at our beautiful faith. Don't touch it. That's not the gospel. That's not the word of God. What God has spoken is a mighty bridge that can sustain the winds of any attack and has. It can endure the examination of any question and it has and support the journey of any sinner into the kingdom of God no matter how heavy his sins may be. There's a truly fascinating example of this truth involving the resurrected Jesus himself. And this will be a bit of a lengthy chunk. So if you want to follow along, it might be helpful in Luke chapter 24. You probably know this story, but it's fascinating. In Luke 24, beginning in verse 13, this is after the resurrection. It says, behold, two of them, two of the disciples were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. And while they were talking and discussing, (laughs) Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. There are times I'm quite certain that God does have a bit of a sense of humor. So he just sort of walks up and sidles alongside. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, What are those words that you are exchanging with one another as you're walking? I'm just curious. And they stood still, looking sad. Their hearts were heavy. One of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? 
Well, no, <laughs> actually he's not. And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, the things about Jesus, the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. But all some women were among us, and they amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, it's me. No, he didn't, did he? He said, oh, foolish men, ouch, and slow of heart to believe in all the miracles of Jesus and all the amazing signs and wonders that you guys saw over the last few years. No. And slow to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory. Then, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And it isn't going to be until he leaves them that they go, oh, that was Jesus. That's amazing to me. And it's instructive Jesus finding these men with heavy hearts, having just watched him die, doesn't say, look, I'm back. He says, you should have known that this is exactly how it was all supposed to go. And he gives them gospel hope, not even first by revealing himself, but by taking them back to the scriptures and saying, this is where your hope should have been found all along. How important is it that we be a people unashamed of the testimony of the word of God, unafraid to pit it up against any other standard of authority, any other truth claim. As I invite our youth to often, take your best shot. The Bible is not scared or nervous about your deepest question, about your greatest challenge. And neither should you be. We can have such great confidence in what God has spoken because he speaks truth. The gospel is and always will be biblical news that stands on the authority of the scriptures. And we should not ever feel like we need to lift it off of the foundation of thus saith the Lord and place it on reason or experience, or logic, or evidentiary proofs, and say that's the foundation of our faith. All of those things affirm the message of scriptures as you would expect, but it is the fact that God has spoken that we appeal to as our authority. Secondly, this gospel is also a matter of historical record. The gospel is historical news. Look with me at verses 5 through 8. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. 
Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. And here we get into this long sequence of appearances, beginning with the appearance of Jesus to Cephas in the Twelve. And as I mentioned, that is the fourth of Paul's fourfold gospel. Christ died for our sins and that he was buried and that he rose again and that he appeared to Cephas and to the Twelve. This appearing of the resurrected Christ attests to the reality of what the scriptures promised. And Paul begins here with the initial appearance of Jesus to Cephas, or Peter, as he's also known. His first appearance to one of the apostles. And that's not described specifically in scripture. But we do know that he was the first apostle that Jesus appeared to. Now I want to make a note. He was the first apostle that Jesus appeared to, not the first person Jesus appeared to. That honor belongs to Mary, who had come to the tomb. After walking the seven miles to Emmaus, the men that we just read about finally figured out they had just seen Jesus when he left, and it says they immediately got up and went back to Jerusalem. So if you're, you know, you're into exercise, that's a 14-mile walk. That's a pretty good walk for one day. And when they get there, it says that they declare that Jesus had spoken to them just as he had already spoken to Peter. After this, Jesus appeared to his apostles apostles at least twice while they were gathered behind closed doors in the upper room, once without and once with Thomas present. And then over the next 40 days, Acts tells us, he appeared to people in all kinds of contexts and to disciples in all kinds of ways. In every case, though, appearing to his own. He was no longer presenting himself to the world, he was now appearing and coming to his people. And we don't know exactly when that was, that there were 500 brethren gathered. But these witnesses that Paul is referring to were obviously known by many. And Paul notes that many of them are still alive, even though some have gone home to be with the Lord. This is now 20 years after Christ had come, and some are entering into their rest. We also don't know which of the three significant Jameses uh, Paul is referring to here when he says that Jesus appeared to James. There were two apostles, as you recall, James the son of Zebedee and James the son of Alphaeus. But there was also James the half-brother of Jesus, who would become such a pivotal leader of the church in Jerusalem, who was initially a skeptic of Jesus' ministry. And I have to just hope, I I would just love it to be that James. And I wish I could have been a fly on the wall. As James, who would come to write the first letter of the New Testament that was written, the book of James, as as he sees his brother in resurrected glory. Just wonder what that conversation would have been like. But there's one last entry in this list. And that is Paul. Paul himself. What a great example this whole section is of the courage of the gospel. And what I mean by that is when this was written, when this was being proclaimed throughout the ancient Near East, it would have been so easy to go back and falsify all these reports. Right? It's one thing if you're writing a message and you're like, long ago and in a galaxy far, far away that none of you can ever visit and nobody can check up on. But when you say, let me tell you something that can be verified by hundreds of known people who are still alive, 
test me on this. That's gutsy. Or it's truth. The Bible has never been afraid to name names, name places, name dates. They can all be gone back to and studied and verified and corroborated. It's not trying to play vague and mysterious. It's declaring truth simply and plainly. There's nothing to hide, and Jesus himself wasn't hiding. But for Paul, these appearances weren't just interesting trivia, and they weren't just interesting apologetic supports. They were the different steps in the chain of gospel transmission that ultimately culminated in his own personal encounter with Jesus and the humbling, humbling transformation that brought about in him. And so we close this morning looking at the gospel as personal news. Personal news. Paul says this, For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. And what humility Paul is putting on display here. Remember, Paul is writing a letter to a church that has made a sport out of undermining him. That finds one of their favorite water cooler conversations to be all the reasons why nobody should have to listen to Paul. And so for him to say, guys, this is almost embarrassing. I don't belong in this office. That's humble. But Paul is not going to steal any of God's glory when he testifies to the work of Christ in his life by trying to artificially make his side of the story look a little better. On his own, Paul says he had no reason to be an apostle and he wasn't exaggerating. Paul had been everything that an anti-apostle would be expected to be. He'd been arrogant, he'd been proud, and he had been a persecutor of the way. He had made it his mission to stamp out Christianity in its infancy. He had done all that he could to get the political power that he needed to go hunt down men, women, and children and drag them in chains to face judgment for having followed Jesus Christ. So how could such an unworthy persecutor become an apostle? Well, he tells us, by grace, by grace. Why do you think this is Paul's favorite subject? Why is it that a Pharisee can't stop talking about grace over law? He had received much. And notice Paul's threefold understanding of God's grace and its relationship to him. He says it was the grace of God that made him who he was. By the grace of God, I am what I am. That was true in every respect. It was both Paul's abilities and his faculties and who he was as an individual and his personality. That was from God. I don't think that's what he primarily means here. It was also the fact that he had been brought into a relationship with Jesus Christ by God striking him down blind to get his attention and saying, you are going to learn two things. I am the Messiah and you will suffer for my name. And with that, what Paul now was, was an apostle called by the resurrected Christ with the ministry of reconciliation to the Gentiles. 
And Paul was finally at a place in his life where he could say, I get it. It's all grace. And that's our answer to anyone who says, how, why? If there is anything you see that doesn't smell like sin, then it smells like grace. Notice, secondly, Paul says it was grace that had worked in his life to accomplish God's purposes. That grace that God had given him and calling him to be what God wanted him to be had not been grace given in vain, but God had been using it. And the Corinthian church that he's writing to is one evidence of that. Through all the persecution, through all the obstacles, through all the weaknesses and hardships, the gospel was triumphing as God desired through this unlikely apostle. His grace was not in vain. And it was that grace that Paul ministered in day by day for daily ministry. He says, I labored. It was hard work. And it was all grace. And for Paul, he's always putting these things together. That ministry of grace is what brought the gospel from Jerusalem to Corinth. And thus... Paul's summary of the gospel has moved from its core message to its historical authenticity to the personal connection of the gospel to Paul and to the Corinthians. And it didn't stop there. Paul says it, it reached you, but it didn't stop there because from Corinth it went to Rome. Uh, Thaddeus and Bartholomew, two other apostles, would eventually go to a country called Armenia. There was a guy named Patrick who would go to Ireland. Men like Tyndale would make sure that God's word got to a place called England. Pilgrims would come to America one day and begin a, a nation here that would be founded with a belief in God that would permeate much of their teaching. Faithful mothers and fathers across this nation would pass that on generation to generation until that message came to James and to Claudia who in 1983 gave birth to a sinner named Chris. And began to deliver to him what they had received. And so I received, and by the grace of God, I believed. And everyone who sits here today that knows Jesus Christ, this is part of your story. It is not just the gospel, but like Paul would call it so often, it is my gospel. And it is your gospel because the grace of God has from that central truth of the person and work of Jesus Christ worked its way down through history and brought you into the story. Defend that with all the authority of Scripture. Proclaim it as historical truth and treasure it as your story, your personal song of redemption. Let's close in prayer. Father, even as we are about to sing, this is our story. This is our song. And in it we have the blessed assurance 
that this Jesus is ours. May we sing that song faithfully every day until you bring us home. Amen.